Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. From Los Angeles, California, it's Music Friday Live, brought to you by Solar City, your source for clean, sustainable energy. I'm your host, Patrick O'Heffernan, and today is an unusual show. We are joined by Donia Oxford, the queen of Boogie Woogie, who is a session player with the likes of Albert Lee and Van Morrison. And we're joined by Denny Tedesco, director of the new film, The Wrecking Crew, about the unknown group of musicians who literally brought America rock and roll. Now, what is unusual today is that both of today's guests are traveling, so neither are actually here live. Donia is in the U.K. with Albert Lee and will be on the road for the next three months, and we will have her back live when she returns. Denny Tedesco is here in Hollywood, but his film is opening tonight in Los Angeles, and he is booked up the wazoo with television and newspaper interviews. So what you're going to hear today is actually an interview that I conducted with him Monday when he had a little more time in his schedule. And the interview with Donya was actually conducted last June, so you know, don't go looking for the vegan beer fest that she's going to be playing at because it's long over. This also means you can't call in or email in for live answers, but you can still email your questions to us, and we will forward them to the guests. So we're going to take a second now to welcome in our affiliates, and then we're going to play the interview with uh, Denny Tedesco. I'm, up, I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, host of Music Friday Live, and I want to welcome our listeners on the CyberStationUSA.com network and their radio affiliates. Today's interviews are pre-recorded, so don't call in or email in. However, you can email your questions for our guests, and we will forward them with your questions to them, and they can answer you uh, personally. So email your questions to musicfridaylive at gmail.com. That's musicfridaylive at gmail.com. And now, without any further ado, here's Denny Tedesco. In the late 40s and early 50s, thousands of men who had returned home from World War II found that the Midwest farms and southern towns and even the Texas oil patch could not support their families. So they headed to Southern California to work in the burgeoning aircraft industry, often with guitars and drum kits strapped on the top of their cars. Well, when they got there, they found Hollywood, year-round sunshine, surfing, bikinis, bikinis, an auto-obsessed culture, and an attitude of openness and risk-taking. So when the songs like Shake, Rattle, and Roll and Rocket 88 and Rock Around the Clock began breaking down the barriers against the new rock music form, they embraced it, popularizing what was first called the California sound and then we simply call rock and roll. Well, at the center of that revolution was a group of 20 or 30 men and one woman who were the session musicians on thousands of the recordings from the 50s to the 70s, the birth years of rock and roll. In addition to playing the music on the 45s and the albums that bore the names of famous bands like The Monkees and The Beach Boys and Sonny and Cher, they sometimes taught those people how to play. The titular leader of this shifting group of musical geniuses was the brilliant and funny Tommy Tedesco, who died in 1997. With us today is his son, Denny, director of the film The Wrecking Crew, about his father and the musicians who brought the nation rock and roll. Denny, welcome to Music Friday Live. Denny? Hello. Yes. Hi. How are you? Welcome <laughs> Welcome to Music Friday Live. I can't believe it's Friday. <laughs> I know. It goes fast. It, it, well, Denny... First of all, uh, let me thank you for this film. Um, I know it took you 18 years to complete, but I am so glad you did it. It is literally a documentary on the soundtrack of my life. In the 50s and 60s, yeah. I would uh, take the quarters I earned from mowing lawns and bagging groceries and go to the Westchester Corner record store and buy 45s that your dad played on, although, of course, I didn't know it at the time. I'll yeah. bet you're hearing a lot of that as this film gets near its L.A. release this Friday. It's it's you know it's amazing because we all you know it it is a musical journey for so many people, and what's interesting to realize um, one song 
for you, let's say, I'll just say good vibrations. You know, it means something to you that may, that's different than me. It's a bookmark in my life, in your life. You know, instantly when you heard that song, where you were, where you lived, who you were dating, or you know what I mean? And it's, it's really cool that, uh, that um, you know, rock and roll at that time would have meant so much to people. And still does. Well, yeah. I, I, know, yeah. I know that you were kind of reluctant to do the film after the short little film you did about your father. So what convinced you to, to go back to the archives and the edit room and the licensing forms and do a full-length film? Well, that, that's a good thing. What, what happened was in, uh, when I was at Loyola Marymount in 1983, you know, I did a project on my dad. I was actually a friend that wanted to do it. So we did it on my dad. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't, it was okay. You know, it was a student film. But what came out of that, though, was something, you know, some great footage. So cut to, that's 1983. We cut to 1996. My dad at this point, is, you know, he's had a stroke. Um, and I always wanted to tell the story about my dad and his friends, you know, called the Wrecking Crew. And then they gave him uh, that diagnosis of terminal cancer, and I was like, Ugh. you know, it was like, you know, it was so shocking to hear those words. And I thought, well, we had taught, and my wife Susan and I talked about this recently, you know, trying to put yourself back in that time period. We must have been talking about doing something because we jumped on it pretty quickly. And we put together a film crew. You know, knowing that let's just get it on in, on film and see what, where we go with it. And we basically put my dad, Hal Blaine, Plaz Johnson, Carol Kate, a round table. And I just let him talk. And, you know, I never saw my father really play in the studios, you know, as a kid. But I always saw, I always saw musicians talk, and that's what they were like. They would just sit there and razz each other. So it was like <laughs> kind of, you know, and I call it the quartet without instruments. <laughs> so that was the first day of shooting. You know, not knowing what, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we knew didn't have much time with my dad. You know, and I kept what? building on it. And I, you know, he never saw a piece of one film. He didn't see one frame of the film. So that was unfortunate. Well, uh, it, it might interest you to know that, that uh, I was at Loyola while I was listening to your dad play on some of those records. Although it was Loyola really? then, it wasn't Loyola Marymount. Yeah, you yeah. didn't have the Marymount in front of you, huh? Yeah. No, no, we did okay without the girls, right? Well, <laughs> in, in retrospect, let me ask you: um, Was it a good thing or a bad thing that the film took so long? I mean, did the time allow you to to, to achieve some things in the film that you might have missed if it if you'd done it in just a year or so? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I say, it's funny because I say this in a couple of ways. It's the greatest thing that it took this long, not financially, you know, it killed us. But the, the best thing that ever happened was if you took the same film right now, but we have exact same cut and we had released it 10 years ago, I don't think it'd have an audience that it does now for many reasons. One, other films that came before us, even though we started before them, kind of like, you know, teased an audience. We have 20 Feet to Stardom, Standing in the Shadows, Muscle Shoals, all these great films. That woke up to a lot of people. But also what more important was, I was able to build an audience over the years, going, you know, showing this film from 2008 on to audiences, you know, audiences around the country and for sneak previews. I always call it sneak previews. Fundraisers. We were raising money as we went along. So what we were doing is every time I go to a town, you know, we'd have a screening, raise some money, pay off a label, pay off a, a publisher. But what was more important as well, not more important, but as as important, was building an audience of fans behind it that were cheering us on. So I would oh. get their email addresses, and I would stay in touch with them. I would give them outtakes. Um, well, let's, we let's, have, let's, hope, let's hope that this yeah. broadcast today is going to build an even greater audience um, Oh, I, I, I want to ask. Know, so much, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to ask you about licensing. Uh, licensing music uh, for documentaries is always the hardest part, and sometimes it's the killer of documentaries absolutely. about bands. So, how how was it for you? Did it did it cost a fortune and turn your hair gray? Yeah. Well, it, hair gray. Yes. Luckily, I still have hair. Um, I, it was you know when, we always knew music was going to be a problem. Not a problem. I didn't think that. That's, that's not true. I never thought music was going to be a problem. I thought sensibility would come across, 
you know, it, you know, but there is no sensibility when it comes, nobody's sensible when it comes to music and, you know, documentaries and filmmaking. But when I, Susie and I started doing this, we would be friends, not, you know, we would have, have lunch with labels and publishers, have groups together, just to tease them with the 14-minute piece, just guys, we know it's going to be something down the line, but I just want you guys to see it. You know, so people started knowing about it, but it wasn't until 2008 that we really needed to license this stuff and quickly. You know, at that point, they had all known about the project, and one publisher, you know, she gave me a price, you know, my initial price that she gave me was $10,000 a song. Ooh. And I said, I am not spending $10,000 for four seconds of Donka, Shane. It's just not worth it. No Donka. You know, so we kept going, and and everybody's on most favorite nations, meaning everybody's going to get the same. So we paid for the festival use, which was, you know, still costly, but still we had to do it. You know, you can't, you know, the thing is, I always say to people, music is not supposed to be free. If you want it to be free, you play it, you know, yeah. yourself. But it's still a business. That's how my yeah. dad, you know, went to work. He got paid for what he did, you know. You bought that, when you went to the store, you bought that 45, I thank you, because that gave my dad more work. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's yeah. the, that's how it all works. Yeah, I know. I, so I when we got to that point, you know, of really getting that, you know, final bill going, I had to renegotiate with people. It was the publishers and the labels that helped me. It was one publisher, Pamela, over at Bug Music that said to me, she said, listen, you got to come back. This is in 2010 when we realized we're never going to get this film out there unless we pay this thing off. And she said, you have to come back, renegotiate with me. You need to come back and say, you know, make it tougher on me because you're never going to get this made. And, and I, she helped me draft it, and she signed off, and she said, okay, now go get everybody else. Well, I'm, you I'm know, certainly glad. she believed she, in the project. I'm certainly glad you know? she did and, and you did. Um, in addition to um, the licensing, you also had to get interviews with stars, and uh, you, you did. Yeah. You got a number of stars. One of the most cogent and thoughtful, at least to me, were the conversations you had with Cher. Now, she seemed to have a yeah. great affection for the Wrecking Crew and for the film. Yeah. How was she in the interviews? Awesome. Right. That's a very, it's funny, because that's always one everybody always says, how did you get Cher? How did you get these stars? And the funny thing about Cher was, years ago, we were working on a video. I was working on this uh, video, a rock video with Cher, one of her many, you know, uh, hits, you know, in the 80s. And I remember standing next to Cher, and Cher was, you know, very businesslike. Cher's, you know, doesn't mess around. And I remember standing intimidated by her as a grip. I wasn't a director. I was was just a lowly grip. And I said to her, I said, Cher, um stuttering probably. I said, my dad worked with you in the, in the day with Phil Spector. She says, who's your dad? I said, Tommy Tedesco. And all of a sudden, that girl that was Cher on set in 1985, all of a sudden became Cher of 16. And she goes, oh my God, Tommy and Hal and, and, and you know, Don. And she, you know, she melted. She became the girl that she was at the time. So I knew there was a chance that Cher would respond. So when we went to her agent, and I asked her agent, and I think the agent just asked out of courtesy for me, because I knew the agent, and she knew my wife. And when she came back, I could hear it in the agent's voice. Cher said yes, as if, like, she never says yes. You know, I'm sure they get hit up all day long for interviews. So when I got to do Cher, it was great. I only had 11 minutes. It was a roll of film. But she filled it. You know, Boy, she, she filled ever, eleven minutes with it. You, you got the best out of her that I have have ever seen in, in interviewing people like her. Well, in addition to playing the music on albums for famous bands like the Mamas and the Papas and the Monkeys and the Beach Boys, um, your dad uh, and the Wrecking Crew also created some bands too. Could you tell us about yeah. the uh, the so called Millie Vanillies? Yeah, exactly. Millie Vanillies. I call them, when Millie Vanilli hit, and I asked everybody those guys, you know. I said, what about Millie Vanilli? And they laughed, because that was what they did all the time. You know, let's go back in 19, you know, the early 60s, rock and roll, it's a product to these labels. So a lot of times, you know, they come up with ideas. And one of the ideas, this one guy, 
who was known at Liberty Records, he was producing the Ventures. And he um, he would come up with these surf bands, these other surf bands, the Marquettes and the Routers and uh, T-Bones. And the Marquettes, he would have Leon Russell, Earl Palmer, my dad, and uh, they'd be playing this, you know, one single called Out of Limits. Right? Well, Out of Limits becomes a a hit. Now they got to do an album. Now, uh, once the album's done, now they got a big cast for a band, and they put a band on the road. Right? Now that Marquette goes out. Now he comes up with another one that's called um, uh, The Routers. Does the same thing with The Routers. Same guys. Same, you know, he always uses the same guys. And uh, it just changes the name. It's called it The Routers. And that's the song that you hear um, in football stadiums around the country. That Let's go. Dun, 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 dun. Let's go. You know, that, uh, and, that's the router. And of course, yeah, a, a lot of those, a lot of those bands were what we sometimes call one-hit wonders, too. Right? Yeah, one-hit wonders, exactly. And then the other one was the T-Bones, which was from the Alka-Seltzer commercial. And you know, I got to give is uh, Joe Saracino was made known as the hustler of hustlers of producers in town, but I got to give him a lot of credit, man. He really thought this stuff out. Because, you know, he saw that T-Bone commercial and said, this is cool, let's do this. And, he, and I think he took it to the Ventures first, and they said, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. So they put together a band, and he said to, uh, you know, Bill Bennett, who, you know, was running the Liberty, he said, hey, who do we have, what kind of name do we have? They must have had names already licensed or something. He says, well, we've got this name called the T-Bones. Okay, we'll call it T-Bones. If I only had known... And I was putting my quarters down. What's that? I said, if I'd only known when I was putting my quarters down to buy the T-Bone albums. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, and it, and, but it was, you know, my dad, listen, he said, there's music, there's a music business. Guys, sometimes it mixes. So, you know, he, he didn't, you know, he was just happy to be able to play a guitar, make a living, put his kids through school. Um, sometimes you like the music. A lot of times you didn't. Don't forget, he, he like he said, I played on hundreds of hits. I made thousands of bombs. You know, it doesn't you know? And he said I never gave anybody their money back, so I was happy with. Them. Yeah, well, that that that's the business. Uh, and, and he he talks about in some seminars that that he did later, and and you gave us some film from those seminars. He he talks about yeah. some of those stories, and and one of them I remember he played this the same. Uh, Latin song for three different people. Do you want to tell us that story? Do you remember it? Well, yeah. I mean, Dad was always, Dad, you know, that was something that my dad always told these kids. And he said, listen, he said, what the difference, and I asked him, what's the difference between a specialist and a session player? And this is how he described it. He says, listen, you got a door in a studio. You don't know what's behind that door. You don't know what piece of music's there. So if you want, uh, the blues guy, you're going to put Eric Clampton there or B.B. King. Don't bring me in. But what if the guy gets in there and it's not just a blues lick, it's, oh, yeah, we got some reading involved here. And, we, and, you know, we need to jump to mandolin or we might need a 12-string here. You know, well, they can't do that. Or Segovia, you you know, bring him in for the classical part. Well, you need, you need to do a country lick now. Well, my father would know just enough, you know, to get by. You didn't have to be an expert. You want an expert, you get the expert. But you got to get, you know, my dad could do any of that. A little of this, a little of that through the studios, and that's that's what made, you know, it happen. You know, for the guitar players out there, um, he had a trick that he, you know, would tell everybody, that he, the younger guitar player says, I don't play traditional tuning. Every guitar, mandolin, bazooki, whatever it is, he says, I tune it like a guitar. So I know where I'm on that fretboard. If it's a banjo, I tune like a guitar. I don't do traditional tuning. He says, I can't tell John Williams in the middle of a session, you know, where I'm lost, that, oh, it's okay, though. It's traditional tuning. <laughs> you know, he'll get sorted out. <laughs> um, so he was very, you know, he was a practical guy. So the Spanish thing was, and he was really good at that. Um, you know, when he first started in the studios, they'd... Uh, they would call all the heavyweight guitar players at the time. They called Barney Ketzel, who's in the studios as well as one of the great jazzers. Do you play classical guitar? And, you know, Barney said no. Howard Roberts, do you play classical guitar? No. Herb Ellis, do you play classical guitar? No. 
And I get down to the guy talking to that school, new guy, do you play classical guitar? He said, yeah. And my father go in there and he'd do a Marlboro commercial with Lorendo Almeida, the great classical player. And they, you know, he, and my father says, I use my pick. They don't care. He's on dum 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 You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, your dad was famous for, for, for never saying no until he was too busy to say yes. I think that was one of his Exactly. Exactly. Now, there, exactly. Are, uh, there are a number of um, producers listed in the credits. And I also think, and tell me if I'm wrong in this one, that the financing of the Wrecking Crew seems to be kind of a documentary into itself. So can you tell us how yeah. you put together all those producers and how you raised the money for this? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, here's what happened is I and my friends, all those producers, the, you know, you see my wife and myself and my brother and, and the other guy, and John Leonidakis and Chris Hope, and those are all my friends that helped us out, and Mitchell Linden. They were all the guys that helped us out for the years and stuck with us. The executive producers came, when I say executive producers, they were the big, you know, they came late. When I say late, they came when we really needed them. You know, they were big donors. You know, when I started doing Kickstarter, you know, I was trying to figure out ways of creating these different, you know, donation levels. You know, we started with groupies. If you donated $100 or less, you were known as a groupie. If you donated $100 plus, you were known as a roadie. And then A&R at 300. And we got to the point where um, we had different levels. You know, it was a way of creating some kind of fun. But the one guy, when the first guy that donated $50,000 saw it at a um, um, screening in New York, it was Cliff Bernstein. And Cliff was, and it's funny because I didn't even meet him at that screening, which is amazing because it was so crazy. It was in New York at a club. And someone brought him, and um, all of a sudden, Cliff calls says, listen, I want to help you out. I want to give you $50,000. I went, oh, my God, thank you so much. And Cliff is the manager of uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he was also the manager of Jimmy Page. Amazing guy. Okay. And, and then also same, Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people can afford it. But there's, you know, when I say that, I don't mean that in a bad way, but only a few people came to help. Cliff was one of them. Same day. I get, within an hour or two, Cliff, uh, um, Jerry Moss of A&M, Jerry had met us and said, listen, I want to give you guys $50,000. But, oh, my God. I'm thinking, listen, what can we do later today? <laughs> Just kept going and this can be done. So that really helped us. And then there was another guy named Dennis Joyce. You know, of, you know Dennis is, was one of those guys that saw it. And he's an amazing character himself. He put out a film for... Um, George Clinton a few years ago and he just fell in love with the film and he felt the same way you know these stories need to be told and he was amazing and then you know I called uh, at the end when we were doing the Kickstarter you know I asked you know Herb Alpert and Herb said you know what if you get that 200000 that you need I'll give you that, that 50 to get you over the board I said great and wow. he was good to his word and he was awesome wow you know well we're so, um, we're we're beginning to get a little tight on time, and there's a couple other yeah, questions yeah. I, I really would like. Uh, after watching, sure. I've watched the film twice now. Um, wow. About Carol. Carol Kay was the only woman in the wrecking crew, and she and yeah. the guys kidded that she was one of the guys. But she pointed Absolutely. out, and, and, and very nicely, you emphasized it with images, that before the 50s, women were very present in bands. There were many outstanding female musicians. Did you ever have any discussions with her or your dad or other Wrecking Crew members about how Carol came to be in the band and why she was the only woman who came to be in the band or in the group? No, really. It was funny because when I asked them, it's funny because I always talked to them. Of, she was nobody's girlfriend. You know, You know, I know yeah. who she was married to. We always talk about you know, sometimes, you know, she had some tough times with a couple of marriages. But no one ever looked at her as as the girl in the room. And, I, and this is where I say, which is, the, you know, I'm sure they gave her lots of crap. You know, I'm sure they gave her lots of grief as a woman, you know, in those days. Can you imagine men in those days? Yeah. But they also, they didn't treat her like, hey, you're just, a, you know, a token. She's a bass player. She's not in that room, you know, as a, you know, a great example. When Gwen Campbell said, 
everybody in that room was a Michael Jordan, and I played with Michael Jordan all day long, and everybody there was Michael Jordan. As a bass player and a drummer and a guitar player, and she's bass and drums, I mean, bass and drums, bass and guitar, you can't have a weak link there. In those days, no. you only have one track. Right. So you can't blow it. You blow it, you're blowing the whole band. They're well, following the, her. The way you presented her in, in the film, she was not only an outstanding bass player, but she was a huge creative force on her own. And she, and she came up with some of the, the lines and the, the signatures of some of the, of the hits that came out. She was quite, yeah. and still is, I'm sure, quite a person. Yeah, no, she's an she's amazing, you know, amazing bass player, amazing, you know, innovator, you know. Yeah. And and it's, you know, they were all there to do their job and if it, you know, come up with ideas, you know. And that was the greatest thing. There was, nowadays, that problem is with making music today, you know, when I say problem is sometimes you you, you don't have the band together. So they're laying down the drums, laying down, laying down the bass. Come on in, we'll lay down the guitar. Well, yeah. you guess what? They're not in the room together, so they're not pushing each other. They're not taking each other in different directions. Mistakes don't happen. Right. So a mistake uh, that you just made, well, that's you can't do it because it, the other guys aren't able to follow. They're not there. I think what one of the things and, your film points out that there are limitations to Garage Band. Uh, now, yeah. Well, yeah. Let, uh, now that you've spent eighteen years making a movie about your dad and the Wrecking Crew. Um, in retrospect, do you think that rock and roll would have become the, the global force that it is today if the Wrecking Crew hadn't been there? You know, it would. It, the wrecking, uh, rock and roll was always going to be there. And that, the thing is, the record labels didn't trust it at the beginning. Like anything, they don't trust it. No one wants to spend money unless they're sure they're going to make money. Same thing with my doc. No one's going to give me any money unless they were sure they might have a chance. You know what I mean? It's all about the business. Now, you still had Nashville making records. You still had um, Motown doing their thing, and you still had yeah. New York and London. You know, it would have been different here. The only thing that these guys had, you know, they didn't. They had a lot to give to. They had a lot of studios. They had a lot of musicians. When I say a lot of musicians, twenty that were doing the rock and roll. And like we said earlier, I'm a the only reason the older guys didn't want to do it is because rock and roll was, it was beneath them. And maybe it was a job that they didn't want to do, so my dad could take that job and take a chance on getting in. But it, was, well, it, I, would, have been, it, would, have, it would have been different. It would have been different. And, and uh, I think one of the testimonies to that is that you have a, a, a film clip of, I forget who it was, but he was saying that uh, George Martin told him that the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, was actually yes. an attempt to do better than an album at the yeah, Wrecking Crew. Yeah, that was Jimmy Webb said that. That was Jimmy um, Webb that said that. Yeah. That, that, that tells sorry, me I cut that, you off on that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's all right. We're in a conversation. Uh, that but tells me that it, uh, this was a huge force. Absolutely. You know, and they didn't know they were a huge force. You know, and the, I think, what, to go back to your question about rock and roll today, there was a drummer of today, his name's Mark Schulman. He plays for Pink. He's like the hot young guy, you know. He's yeah, I know he great is. Great drummer, amazing drummer. And Mark said something to me once. He said in an interview, he said, you know what, you could hate everything Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine ever did, or maybe not even ever heard it, and which would be impossible. But he said, the difference is, he says, anybody we were influenced by, our teachers were influenced by them. Whatever we were doing or they were doing, I mean, their, their teachers, they all copied what Earl and Hal were doing. Those fills, those shuffles, all that stuff came out of those two guys in L.A. at the time. And then Jim Gordon, and you know, you had Jim Keltner later, and, you know, those guys. You learn from what came before you. Well, these guys, Hal and Earl and Leon and my dad and Carol, they didn't really have much to learn from before because they are beginning things. They're beginning of rock and roll. You know, they're, oh. they're doing things that they don't know that they're doing that's going to be copied later. Well, they, they, they taught the rest of us, and boy, are we glad they did. And unfortunately, we are out of time, so I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can see the film. Uh, here in Los Angeles, it's uh, opening this Friday at the New Art Theater in Santa Monica, uh, 
And I understand the Wrecking Crew members Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, and Don Randy and Bill Pittman are going to be at the evening screenings this Friday. You're going to be there yep. Saturday evening and Sunday. Am I right on there. that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Five, the 7.30 show on Friday sold up at the 5 o'clock show, and I'll have the guys there. They'll be there and uh, for the 5 o'clock. And the next night I'll be there. I'm hoping I'll be there with Don Randy and uh, Joe Osborne as well the next night. Um, okay. But we're there for a week. And if they, right. you know anybody can always go to the Wrecking Crew site to check out the times around the country. Well, the t- like you said, tickets are still available for most of the other showings, but Friday at seven thirty is sold out. Uh, the New Art Theater, incidentally, is on Santa Monica Boulevard, just west of the four hundred five. It's right next to a big, beautiful video store at the corner of Sawtell. For those of you outside of Los Angeles, <clears throat> and there is world and reality outside of Los Angeles, I know. The film will continue the rollout that started last month across the U.S. and Canada. So go to the website. That's www.thewreckingcrewfilm.com. There's a list of cities and dates there. And while you're there, you can buy a copy of the DVD at the website for yourself. And well, check yeah, out yeah, the, but you will be able, You will be able to buy the DVD soon. Yeah, it comes okay. out, but I will be taking, uh, I'll put your name in and I'll let you know when it comes out. You can pre-order a copy of the DVD, and while there you're you there, check out uh, a Wrecking Crew T-shirt or coffee mug or apron or even a bowling shirt and an autographed guitar. There's lots of stuff there. Denny, thank you so much for joining thank me today, so and thank you for this film. Awesome. Have a great day. And that was Denny Tedesco. And check out the film. I've seen it, and it is wonderful. And so you should see it, too. Remember, it's going to be in, in the New Art in Santa Monica and in many, many theaters across the country and also in Canada. Check it out at the website. Well, next we're going to hear from Donya Oxford. But first, we're going to hear a word from uh, our sponsor, and that would be Solar City. And as you know, solar power is a huge win-win for homeowners. But a lot of people are reluctant to take the plunge into solar because of the upfront costs. Well, with Solar City, you can go solar for zero upfront costs on approved credit. That's right. Solar City will come out and they'll install a solar system on your home for free, and you only pay for the power you use. You know, just like you do from the utility company, but you have a lot lower monthly bill because the sun is making as much as half of your electricity. Solar City pays for the system, it insures the system, and it maintains the system. All you have to do is sit there and enjoy the savings. So if you've been ready for solar, but solar hasn't been ready for you, it is now at Solar City, America's number one clean energy provider. Now, how do you find out? Well, you call my friend Tina at Solar City. And she has a phone number. It's 909-618-6937. That's 909-618-6937. Tell her Music Friday sent you, and you will save $250 on your order. That's 909-618-6937. Cameo Entertainment Group and CyberStation USA are now part of Stitcher, a free radio app for your smartphone. With Stitcher, you can listen to live programming as well as archive radio programming right on your phone. To obtain Stitcher, just go to the App Store for your particular phone. Go to search, then type in Stitcher. That's Stitcher. S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R. Well, Donia Oxford is a vastly underappreciated talent. Every show she performs in is a blowout with the audience. They standing and whistling and demanding more. She brings a level of talent and energy to the stage that you find in someone like Trombone Shorty or the E Street Band. Her album, Soul Quest, and her earlier album, Donya Oxford, deliver the goods and then some. And when she tours the UK, stars like Van Morrison ask her to be part of the recording sessions, and she plays on stage with greats like Albert Lee. Now, there is a reason that she's known as the goddess of soul and the queen of boogie-woogie. She is both and then some. Well, Donia is with us for, was with us for a few minutes last week and invited us to her birthday bash in L.A. last Friday, which I attended and had a great time at. And she's with us right now. So I'm happy to welcome Donia Oxford to Music Friday Live. Hi, Donia. Hi, Patrick. I love you. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty awesome, too, you know. Thank First of you. All, I want to thank you for the, for the birthday bash last Friday. It was a blast. But I have oh, a question for you. Oh, we had so much fun. 
oh, we all had so much fun, but where you get the energy to do not one, not two, but three high-octane sets. I mean, I was tired halfway through set number two. Caffeine, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll tell you where I actually, where I really do get my energy is from the energy of the audience. It's cyclical, you know. Uh, if If I know that they're having a good time and they're feeling it, uh, it just gives me more energy. So uh, that's where I really get it from. Well, we were having a good time, and we were feeling it. Um, there were people up dancing and blocking all the the entrances to the to the restrooms. There were people rocking out at the bar. That was that was quite a show. Well, it was I wild. To, it really was. You you put on a wild show to say to say the least. Well, I want to let our uh, our audience listen to a little bit of that high octane energy that you have. Here is love, sweet love. That's the kind of energy I, I was uh, talking about. And also, I, I wanted to correct myself. I, I misspoke. Uh, your previous album is uh, Step Up, and I should know that because that's sitting right here next to the uh, control panel in the studio. Now, Donia, that song really keeps you moving. Um, but I can't decide if it's a sad song or a happy song. Um, I've got nothing, <laughs> I got nothing, but I got love. Now, Now, what inspired you to write that? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm a huge fan of Albert King and all and his kind of that vibe with the horns going, that stack sound. And, you know, he's, he, he often had songs that kind of did the same thing. They were, they were sad, but they were, you know, they were meaningful and, and loving. So I kind of, kind of, I guess, uh, really just, uh, was inspired by that. And, um, you know, it's a blues lyric, really, is what it is. And uh, I grew up playing the blues and loving the blues. And so, you know, blues can be, it, it comes from the, uh, you know, the Depression era and the sadness. Obviously, that's why they call it the blues. And yet there's a happiness underneath, underlying, because, uh, you know, when when we all come together in our own misery, <laughs> there's still some sort of togetherness, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, at the birthday bash last week, in which there was no misery at all, uh, you were telling me how you happened to end up in a studio recording with Van Morrison and a few other great musicians. Would you care to tell our listeners a story of the train ride that didn't happen? <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, I had performed the night before, Sunday night, with Albert Lee on his birthday bash in England, in London, um, with the likes of uh, Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones, Elliot Randall from Steely Dan, and a, a, an array of, of um, different amazing legendary UK rockers. And so I performed that night with them. And the next day, I had a small boogie-woogie gig in southern England. And I was literally getting on a train to go to that gig, and I get a text from the promoter from the Albert Lee Show and it said Van Morrison was in the audience last night, and he wants to know, can you stay and be on his album? And I literally had one foot, like, getting on the, on the train and one foot on the platform, and I was like, oh, what do I do? Um, so, of course, you know, it's Van Morrison. You don't say no to Van Morrison. So I stepped off the, back onto the platform and, you know, kind of freaking out because I, now I had to cancel a gig at the last minute, which I felt terrible about, and... um and, you know, I had non-refundable tickets, and I had already canceled out my hotels and everything. So, um, But it, it worked out really well, and it was just such a pleasure to play for Van and Roger Daltrey. Uh, Van is working on a duets album. He's got May the Staples on one track, um, Ginger Baker. He's got an amazing artist, and uh, I think he's still in the process because they've asked me to come back 
in September and record on a few more tracks. So wow. uh, I was fortunate to be in the studio with Roger Daltrey and Ginger Baker and Van at the same time, and it was it was amazing. It was fantastic. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, boy. We're talking with uh, Donia Oxford, the, the goddess of soul and the queen of boogie-woogie. And you can talk with her, too. You can call in 347-215-7511, or you can email us. You can email us at musicfridaylive at gmail.com. And actually, we have an email here for you, and this is kind of interesting. This is from Moreno in Los Angeles, and Moreno wants to know, are you the only touring Boogie Woogie band? I never hear it on the radio, and it sounds like a lot of fun and great for dancing. Uh, no, I'm not the only one. Um, there are lots of boogie players, mostly in Europe, very few in the United States. Um, there's uh, some wonderful women, women like Wendy DeWitt up in Northern California, uh, Sue Palmer down in Southern California. There's some great guys. Carl Sonny Leland is a fantastic boogie player. And as a matter of fact, he's playing, I believe, this Sunday at, in Burbank at Joe's in Burbank. And there's, um, or Monday, I'm sorry. And there's some great players in the Midwest, um, Mr. Boogie, uh, who's like up in uh, Detroit kind of area, that the Midwest, upper upper Midwest area. Um, so there are uh, Arthur Migliazza up in Seattle. So there's some amazing boogie players. You just kind of got to scout them out um, on the web. But uh, there's there's boogie all around, and mostly predominantly in Europe. Still very popular done. there. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a step back, and I want to know, how did Albert Lee and you get together, especially when you've got this ocean separating the two of you? <laughs> well, I uh, Albert lives here in California, actually. Uh, and he um, uh, he was hired to play with a band that I was actually sidemanning in, uh, a band called Hot Roo up in Ventura. And they had hired him to front the band, and I was in the band that night, and that's how we met. And uh, we get together periodically and play together with both with Hot Roo and separately, and uh, it's been a fantastic relationship. I love Albert, and he's such a strong supporter of me and my music, and uh, he's amazing, really amazing, the best, one of the best guitar players in the world. And he's got uh, good taste in um, um, keyboard players, too, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, your, your signature stage song is the Boogie Woogie song, um, and where you play with one hand, you lift up the piano, and you spin around, and in general, you just keep the, the audience rocking for 10 or 15 minutes without stopping. Is that on any of your albums, or is it available anywhere for download? It is. It's uh, actually on an album called Raw, which is a live album that I recorded ooh, quite some time ago, about 10, 12 years ago, in New York City when I lived in New York. And um, that track is available on that album. Okay, and, and that album can be uh, located at your website, uh, is that correct? Correct, my website, on iTunes, uh, on CD Baby, on most of the outlets. Yeah. Okay, outlet. and uh, that website is www. D O N A O X F O R D dot com, uh, Donia Oxford dot com. Um, and uh, check it out. You can get all of her albums there. Well, I don't have the Boogie Woogie song, unfortunately, here in, in my, uh, my little jukebox, but uh, I do have another one of your great high energy songs, a piano song from your album Step Up. And this is, uh, this is Don't Go. So, so you always get your way, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, a Gemini. Did, did, 
<laughs> and did I'm you a write woman. that? Did, yeah, right. Did you write that song? I did. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, I I guess that's why you always get your way. We're talking with Donia <laughs> Oxford, goddess of soul and queen of boogie woogie. We'd like to talk to you. Three four seven two one five seventy five eleven. That's three four seven two one five seventy five eleven. We'll take a, a quick break for a little commercial business, and we'll, but don't go away because we'll be right back with uh, with Donia. Our troops aren't the only ones fighting right now. Thousands of military families are in crisis. They're fighting financial battles, how to pay the bills, even how to keep their homes and feed their children. You can help by supporting Operation Homefront, a national nonprofit that provides emergency assistance for military families and for wounded warriors when they come home. To learn more about how you can help, go to OperationHomefront.net. Hi, this is Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm your host at Music Friday Live. We're talking with Donia Oxford, and we have a caller on the line. Caller, why don't you tell us your name, the city you're in, and uh, you have a question for Donia. Yes, this is Joe, and uh, I live in Los Angeles, and I've uh, seen and heard Donia play, and my, my question is, what's the enduring popularity of Boogie Woogie? Because I always associate it with World War II and before, but it's still... It's still as popular, and people seem to be becoming more popular. Yeah. Hi, Joe. How are you? I uh, I would say, you know, energy to Boogie Woogie. It's vibrant. It's bouncy. And, you know, in, in tough times and bad economic times and, you know, things like that, it just makes people happy. It makes people want to dance. And because it's, it is challenging, relatively challenging, for a, a piano player to play. So, um I think the audience can realize how difficult the style is to play and admire the artist for, for being able to learn it and do it. You look at somebody like Liberace, who was actually excelled in Boogie Woogie, even though he did many other things classical as well. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it really is a difficult skill to achieve because it's hand separation. Two hands are doing two very separate things. And so your your mind is kind of split between the two, and it's uh, I think people would uh, admire that. Thank thank you, Joe. I appreciate the question, and now I learned something about Donya. I didn't know before that she has a split personality. <laughs> Very true. Again, Gemini. <laughs> um, uh, 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 thank you, Joe. Um, you have a uh, a ton of gigs booked in Southern California, and then you go back to England, so. Uh, you've got another Southern California concert coming up. You're going to be at the Sunset Craft Beer Fest and the Valencia Jazz Fest, among others. What's a craft beer fest like? Oh, it's fantastic. It's a, um, They take over this very large parking lot area, and it's um, a wine tasting, a beer tasting. All the um, truck uh, food trucks come out, uh, specialty food trucks. And it's for all ages, actually, and uh, it's a lot of fun, an outdoor uh, kind of fest with music and games for kids, and um, it's, a, it's a blast. And, and where's it going to be? It's going to be at uh, on Sunset Boulevard, right near the corner, um, just kind of near Doheny, uh, where the old Tower Records used to be. I believe the address is 8455 Sunset Boulevard, and... Uh, You'll hear the music and uh, <laughs> as you drive by, I'm sure. Oh, all right, and uh, they, and everybody can find out about your tour and all the other gigs and that one at www.doniaoxford.com. That's D-O-N-A-O-X-F-O-R-D. Doniaoxford.com. Well, before we talk about the upcoming return trip to the United uh, Kingdom, um, I wanted to shift the mode a little bit and play another song from the uh, Soul Quest album. This is uh, Evermore. I'm lying next to you in 
I come to bed And I'm sorry cause I never wanted you to think that I didn't care And the beauty of the weight of your body resonates I, I love that song. Um, now Thank you. you you sing about love and loss and betrayal and bliss. You know the the raw material <laughs> of soul and blues. How much of your songwriting is from your life, and how much of it is just uh, your take on classic themes? I would say it's a fifty fifty. I've definitely had my share of heartbreak, um, but really it is on classic themes. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of. You know, like Ron Isley, Al Green, Gladys Knight, the real soul, you know, singers of that era. And uh, I really do love those themes. And I think they speak to everybody because everybody has been in love and had their heart broke and been in love again. So, um, but yes, I, I've had my share, <laughs> I will admit. <laughs> so so some of those, are you really do mine your, your life for your, your themes. Yes, uh, they do. We've got, we've got some more emails here. Um Ladida da 5 in Seattle wants to know, is it easier or harder to play boogie-woogie on the piano or on the electric piano? Oh, good question. You know, uh, it depends. Different players prefer different modes. So uh, for me, it's either or. i am kind of gotten used to playing on both. There are some piano players that w- refuse to play boogie on an electric keyboard because it's too lightweight. But uh, I just because... I've had to, you know, carry a keyboard with me a lot, and there's not a lot of venues here that have full real pianos. Um, I've learned to adapt, um, so I can do both, but really it's do it on a real piano. You have a wider range, a better weight, a better action bouncing under your fingers. Okay, well, just just to, to show that, I want to I want to go back and play a little bit more of Love, Sweet Love, so we can really and listen really carefully here. Now that probably wasn't the best example of that, but uh, I'm really uh, uh, I'm amazed when I watch you play the piano. Uh, we have a uh, another caller on the line who wants to talk to you. A uh, caller, tell us your first name and what city you're in. Hi, I'm Elena from Los Angeles. Donia, could you give us a little background of your musical training, how you came to be the singer, um, composer, and performer that you are today? Uh, thank you, Elena. Um, I uh, actually, you know, I was musical theater for a long time in New York City. Uh, I always wanted to be Judy Garland and, and Bette Midler when I was a little kid, and I loved their energy and their performance. Uh, and then I had always taken piano since the time I was six years old. I, I played piano. And, uh, you know, acting in New York is very hard to get gigs, and the music just kind of fell in pretty easily. It was easy to get work as a piano player. So uh, the music kind of took over and I started doing that more and more. And the songwriting always just stems from my personal passion for music. And I love lyrics. I love poetry. And I I love wordplay. So I think a combination of my theatrical background, my piano skills at a very early age, and my um, desire for wordplay and puns and things like that kind of all came together, I think. And uh, that's my inspiration. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you, Elena. And, and if you want to, you can uh, show up at the uh, the Beer Craft Festival uh, and on Sunset, and you can uh, talk to her live because I know she's kind of easy to talk to. Um, We've got uh, we've, we're coming up on the the end of the segment, but I wanted to, to make sure that we had a chance to hear another one of my 
favorite songs of yours, and this is uh, Shame on Me. Shame, 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 shame on me, for loving, loving, loving you. That song always brings the house down. I love it. But there's a there's an interesting line in there, and it says, uh, "You're reprehensible. You suck the light that is within me, but I take it on the chin because you know it makes my body go insane, incomprehensible." <laughs> um, and others in the same vein. Uh, was there a particular person who inspired that? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. There was definitely somebody who uh, inspired that. Uh, He shall remain nameless. (laughs) Oh, well, of course he he shall. (laughs) Actually, you know, the song title um, was actually inspired by a a line in the movie. There's a great Tom Hanks movie called That Thing You Do. And at the very end of it, the girl says to the lead character, uh, shame on me for loving you with my eyes closed so tightly. And I thought it was just such a beautiful line. So I thought, oh, shame on me for loving you. It just worked. Yeah. Well, well, it really works because whenever I see you live and you play that, that, that everybody is up dancing. That that's got so oh, yeah. much energy into it, and and uh, maybe they're not listening to the words. You know, I don't know, but <laughs> we're having a, a a lot of fun. Well, well, Donya, we are out of time. Unfortunately, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. I really appreciate all the support that you give me, and uh, I thank all your fans and listeners. They've been, I've improved my uh, Twitter, <laughs> uh, my Twitter fans. So I thank you guys for that. Okay. Um, and Donya's most recent album is Soul Quest. You should also pick up a copy of her earlier album Step Up. In fact, why don't you just get all five of them while you're at her website? That's www. DoniaOxford.com, and she's also available on iTunes. Check out the tour page because, like, and that was Donia Oxford. That was an interview from last June before uh, that's when she first told us she was going to go off uh, to the UK with Albert Lee, where she is right now. And we're going to have her back on the show live when she gets back from the UK, and she can tell us all of those great stories that I'm sure she's going to be collecting while she's traveling around. Well, you've been listening to Music Friday Live with Patrick O'Heffernan from uh, the Blog Talk Radio Network and the Cyber Station USA Network and all of our radio affiliates. You know, if you like our Facebook page and follow our Twitter feeds, you'll get real-time updates on our guests. Our producer is Lars Christensen. Our program director is Jason Bartlebin. Our um, intern is Angeline Serrano. Thank you, Angeline, for handling all the social media for us. You can download this and other music programs at blogtalkradio.com, Music Friday. Now, like I said, we're going to be traveling next Friday, so you'll have the opportunity to listen to your favorite Music Friday live program. You can just go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash music Friday. That's www.blogtalkradio.com slash music Friday and pick the the show that you want to listen to, download it as a podcast, stick it in your uh, in your iPod, and away you go. In the meantime, like I always say, have a great musical weekend, and I'm going to leave you with a little bit more of Donia. Got a heart of gold, you pulled me from the cold. And-